0: Welcome to Outside the Music Box. I'm Emma Williams. And I'm Chloe Prendergast. We're so glad you joined us today. We're both violinists based in the Netherlands and have created this podcast in our search to find fun new ways to share and talk about music we love. Each episode, we explore a different piece of music through the eyes of a guest musician. Our goal is that you don't have to be a total music nerd to enjoy this podcast. So we put little explanations of technical terms, some background info, and excerpts of the music we're talking about throughout the episode. If we miss anything, definitely let us know and we'll clarify in future episodes. We've also linked some Spotify playlists in the show notes with all the
1: music we talk about so you can go and enjoy for your own listening pleasure. Today's guest is keyboardist Chris Bezadenhout, who I first met while hanging out after a concert with some mutual friends. Today he's brought in Bach's St. Matthew Passion, a piece for two orchestras, two choirs, a boys choir and soloists that lasts a total of about three hours. It tells the story of the lead-up to Jesus' crucifixion with all the characters portrayed by the musicians. There's a tenor who plays the evangelist, basically the narrator of the story, as well as Jesus, Judas, Peter, two high priests, Pontius Pilate, Pilate's wife, two witnesses, two maids, and crowds that are portrayed by the choirs. Also, it's in German because Bach lived in Germany. This piece is traditionally performed on Good Friday, which is
0: why we are publishing this episode today, on Good Friday, if you keep track of that kind of thing. In Europe, but especially in the Netherlands, there are heaps of performances of this piece in the lead up to Easter, and since this year, 2021, almost none of these are happening and people are missing that tradition, we thought now would be a nice time to share this chat with you. You've probably realised that this is a super long episode, Uh, it's an Easter special, if you will, and we really dig deep into the music and some historical and philosophical questions, so feel free to take breaks. You can even listen to movements of the piece in between the podcast sections, if that is nice for your brain. And, as always, if you have questions or feel like we didn't
1: explain something well enough,
0: definitely message or email us and we'll be happy
1: to clarify. This show is fully listener-supported, so please consider donating via our PayPal, which is paypal.me slash outside also linked in the show notes. We really appreciate the support so we can keep the show running and so we can pay our lovely friend Joanna Noyshots for her help with editing. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy this episode with Chris and Bach's St. Matthew Passion. Thank you so much for being here and for joining us.
2: My great pleasure.
1: On this podcast, we have our guests introduce themselves. so do you mind introducing yourself for everybody?
2: Sure. Um, my name is Chris Bezadenhout. uh I am a forte pianist, a harpsichordist, a keyboard player, early keyboard player in general. I was born in South Africa in nineteen seventy nine. Um, lived in Australia for a while and New York and now I live in London but this podcast is coming to you from Paris, France.
0: Very nice. So international. (laughs) (laughs) Where did you um, go in Australia?
2: Um, I I lived on the Gold Coast, Emma.
0: (gasps) Nice.
2: Where are you from, Emma?
0: I'm from Darwin.
2: Okay, right.
0: (laughs) I'm also a northern kid.
2: And you're based in Amsterdam as well?
0: I mean, we're both in The Hague.
2: Yeah. I see. Oh, okay. Yep. Got it. Got it. Yeah.
0: But then I studied in Melbourne and then came to The Hague. So. I see. Mm-hmm. Why did you go to go- the Gold Coast?
2: Do you know Emma? My my father had a business opportunity there, and we sort of thought it would be temporary, a temporary solution. But he landed there and got a very good uh, position as an accountant for some people he'd known in South Africa. So it was just one of those sort of starting off points that happened to be where we stayed. Um in retrospect it was an odd place to be for for a person, you know, heavily involved in music, but it was a great, great place to live.
3: Um I mean I Australia, to grow up.
2: yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: same. <laughs> um well you, uh, it's, uh, amazing that you've brought such a huge work and our podcast is usually about 45 minutes. So it's going to be interesting for us to talk about this in yes. um, a bit of a short time, but we'll give it a go. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, it's an amazing work you brought in the Barks and Matthew Passion. Mm. Maybe what we could do to start with is do you mind giving a little bit of a just general background to set the scene of what this work is yes. and then we'll go into how you've sort of, you know, had it on your life journey so far? Absolutely,
2: absolutely. Um, uh, you're right, what a remarkable piece to even begin talking about. In fact, it's one of those pieces that sort of defies explanation. It's a very hard piece to to discuss. It kind of brings it down to earth in a way that that, that piece probably more than any piece I know, defies kind of rational uh, sort of human explanation. Um, and I'm sure that it would have had that effect probably in the 1720s as well. But, you know, it's, Bach is in Leipzig. He's got this job, which is starting out well. Um, he's had a few years of uh, presenting new cantatas that he's written. Mm-hmm. But as with, with any of these people, in the early 18th century, he has to present a big a big piece for Easter time. Um, what's so fascinating about the Matthew Passion is that Bach kind of, this is what's so extraordinary about him, like with Mozart as well, he has this ability to come up with an idea and then fully fledge and realize an idea like this with almost no precedence and no um, successes either. And he toyed around with the St. John Passion in 1725. But I think as 1727 comes around, he realizes that he's going to return to this and presents this essentially this three-hour kind of Easter oratorio format for the listeners at the Thomaskirche. And in doing so, kind of comes up with the most astonishing uh, astonishing framework and size and magnitude for a piece of that kind. Um, And also it's kind of human level of possibility uh, as well but we also have to just remember that it's also just a piece of music um
3: (laughs) yeah you know
2: it's kind of a has a mythical status now but in 1727 you know they went along and and had this piece uh as part of the passion uh services um for the first unveiling of something like this and that's again a lot of the paradox of it is it's it's both this kind of Monument to Western art, and and something that we probably should have sent into space, and not the yeah. second Brandenburg Shadow. But then it's also just a piece that you sit and listen to and experience like any normal person, uh, you know, now or in the 1720s.
1: Yeah, and that it was both. It is both that enormous, monumental, beautiful thing, and also written because it was his job.
2: Exactly, and like that's both
1: what, of those things at the same time. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's w- what makes it almost doubly uh extraordinary um is that sense of its um well we can talk about this later but it, it, this kind of layer of, of the dialectic between the ordinary and the expected this amazing sense of expectation versus reality is, uh, is i think so perfectly encapsulated in a piece like the matthew passion probably more than any other piece um of, of the time actually
1: Okay, yep, just to recap, this piece was written in 1727 by Johann Sebastian Bach for the Good Friday service at the Thomaskirche in Leipzig. It was the second of two passions that he wrote. The first was the St. John Passion, which is also still performed just as much as the Matthew, but it's slightly smaller scale and with a slightly different story. The text Bach used for the Matthew Passion was written by Pikanter, a poet that Bach worked with regularly.
0: The structure of the St Matthew Passion includes a lot of different kinds of movements that alternate to create the flow of the story. There are large choruses where the orchestras and choirs sing and play together. There are arias where a soloist sings a song that reflects on what's going on, sometimes with a solo instrument as well. There are recitatives, which are speech-like ways of singing, which in this piece are often sung by the evangelist to tell us the story, or Jesus saying some stuff. And finally, there are also chorales, which are the equivalent of modern-day hymns based on the Lutheran liturgy. These would have been really well known by the congregation, and provided pillars of reference throughout
1: this really long piece. Also, while we are talking about all of this very religious stuff, you should just know that neither of us is actually religious. We'll talk about this later in the chat, but I grew up as a Jew and learned about Lutheran traditions mostly through playing Western classical music. Emma wasn't raised religious, and learned about most of this from singing in her college choir. Because this story has a very complicated history that means a lot of different things to different people, we just want you to know that we absolutely respect everyone's religious beliefs and personal connections to it. We are now about to give you a rundown of the story as it is told in the St. Matthew Passion in a bullet-point, whimsical way. Enjoy! It starts with Jesus
0: announcing his upcoming death. Other people also want him to die. Then they have the Last Supper, and Jesus tells everyone that someone is going to betray him. They all go hang out in a garden, where Jesus asks his friends to support him, but they all fall asleep while he prays in agony. Judas betrays him. Then a soprano and alto are sad, while the crowd, aka the choir, angrily
1: shouts some stuff. Part 1 ends with a reminder that Jesus was born from the Virgin Mary. Part 2 starts with an interrogation at the high priest's place. Jesus doesn't answer about whether or not he destroyed and rebuilt a temple, but he does answer the question about whether he is the son of God, which is a sacrilege. Judas feels really bad and kills himself. Then there's the whole thing where the Jews are allowed to release one prisoner, but instead of releasing Jesus, the crowd votes to release Barabbas, the thief and murderer. So Jesus dies. Then there's an earthquake and they bury Jesus and put guards at his grave to prevent fraud. Much like the end of every musical ever, the whole ensemble comes together to wrap up with a final musical number, singing, Rest Gently, Gently Rest. Here's the very beginning of the St. Matthew Passion to get you in the mood. Tell us about the first time you heard it, found out about it, played it. Yeah. How did you discover the piece?
2: Yeah. Look, um, Chloe, I was when I was growing up, I I became really obsessed with with CDs. And my father struck this deal with me where, where every month he would get me a CD of my choice. You know, and in Australia, compact discs were really expensive. They were.
0: Time. I know. Really?
2: I mean, they were $30, $30. The one CD. Wow! And it was one of those things where in Australia a double CD was not discounted in price. It was sixty dollars, and yeah, exactly. a, three, <laughs> a three CD set was ninety dollars. Um, so when you got an opera box set for a present, it was or an oratorio, it was a it was a big deal in that time. Yeah, um, it came. You know, I mean, we've lost so much of that, but the preciousness of of being given. a a recording with a beautiful booklet and something that you can really pour over and investigate was so wonderful. My father uh, started this kind of deal with me and I became so very quickly obsessed with early music recordings Mm. Um, and mostly vocal orchestral music. I wasn't listening to harpsichord music. I wasn't listening to solo keyboard music. It was mostly oratorios, operas, um, cantatas. And the journey started with Bach cantatas, and so I'd, I'd listened to those pieces, and especially the B minor Mass. That was a piece I was just mm. really obsessed with. I, I think I had six recordings of the piece. <laughs> wow.
3: Um
2: It was really, it was deeply nerdy and obsession. Yeah, a total obsession. Matthew Passion came a bit later, and I'll never forget. I was at the State Library of Queensland in Brisbane, and I I was very much obsessed with John Elliott's work and I knew a lot of his recordings and I knew that he'd recorded the Matthew Passion in 1989. So I I hadn't heard it when it came out, but this would have been when I was about, um, 14, I guess. Mm. Uh, so that would have made it about 94, maybe 93, but probably 94. And, you know, just checking out the Matthew Passion and getting the book booklet and sitting down in one of those little booths as, as you, remember in the library
3: yeah.
2: and and putting on this recording for the first time as a 13 or 14 year old. I I cannot tell you that is one of the, those moments that will sort of be embedded in the psyche. Like I think in the Hollywood movie, when you're seeing your life flash before your eyes, that's <laughs> that's one of those, seriously, one of those moments where I just, a time absolutely stopped. I could not have imagined the effect of what I was listening to. I mean, I think You've heard pieces like Bach cantatas or Handel oratorios, maybe as a as a teenager or certain other things, but there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing in the repertoire that will prepare you for the kind of combination of gravitas, but drama, but also kind of almost grotesque, like Baroque extravagance that you hear in the first chorus of the Matthew Passion. It's, it's just imbued with so much tragedy, but also kind of portent and, and doom. It's it's so unrelentingly um, uh, it's not depressing, but it's it, un, unrelentingly uh, dark in its vision, and it's just not something that you really associate with with the music, necessarily of the Baroque in quite that sort of fun ache or or, or Rubens way. And you hear this first chorus, and you're a teenager, and, and You know, it starts with this very kind of brooding drama, but quiet, uh, and I, I was just completely, completely gobsmacked. think also in that moment I realized wow that the the level of polish and perfection and kind of commitment to a vision that these people like John Elliott were bringing to to music that we knew very well I mean in my case I didn't know the Matthew Passion but I was so astonished by that and thought to myself I have to be involved with this kind of person with these kinds of instruments, with this kind of recording technology as well. I was just, really, it was a game changer listening to that first chorus for the first time.
1: And did you sit and just listen to the entire thing straight through in that little recording booth?
2: Uh, you know, Chloe, I think it, I was so overwhelmed that I couldn't, I, I seem to remember I listened to the whole of the first part, which is not, you know, saying so much because it's much shorter than, than...
1: No, but I mean, that is like 45 minutes at least. Yeah.
2: That's right, and it does it does kind of encapsulate every all of the kind of sense of drama and textural variety that you're going to get in the piece. And Lord knows that there's there's a huge journey in that first part in and of itself. But I think that was kind of in, enough. Um, I think for someone who's not heard the Matthew Passion for the first time, getting through the first part is is enough of an not an ordeal, but it's a it's a real. Journey, you have to be so, so Zen-like in your concentration to be open both to the the speed at which things unfold, which is very glacial in a sense. Um, it's a lot more like a Netflix show. You've just got a lot more speed and continuity set up for you. But I remember thinking to myself, sitting in that little booth, that it, it's almost too much to take in. One has to just step back and really appreciate everything. And the, sh- the sheer variety of material that's presented in that piece is enough to make the listener kind of real. You know, you really have to be in the right frame of mind to to take it in.
0: Yeah, amazing. And, yeah, you talk about variety. It is, uh, it's such a varied piece. I mean, if yeah, if we go into, like, how the piece is actually constructed, there's so many different elements. For a start, we have two whole orchestras and two whole choirs yes. and a boys' choir, <laughs> Or yes. a kids choir, yeah. that's massive. And then they all get their own special bits, and yes. um, I find that incredibly amazing. Do you have a particularly, maybe yeah, a favourite section of the the ensemble? I guess that you you like other than playing continuo yourself.
2: <laughs> what a what a fascinating question. It, it's true, Emma. I I mean, on paper, the idea of the of the two orchestras with their uh, sort of associated choirs seems unique and novel and and interesting just from a kind of historical standpoint but then when you sit back and realise the kind of sonic um, the sonic brilliance of that conception and how it plays into this creation of a kind of narrative stereo in a sense is so fascinating because he doesn't use the idea in a wholesale way, it's always very carefully calculated and it reminds me a lot of of being in the cinema and and with a really good Dolby surround sound, you realize that, that the effects are, have become so gentle, very advanced, in fact, that sometimes you, you feel sounds almost like behind your head and you realize that the Dolby is doing that. And with Bach, it's so clever. You know, he goes from very... Kind of blockbuster use of the two forces, like in the first chorus, where you have you know who and questions being answered, you know from side to side. Which, which, if you step back, could be a little bit like nineteen fifties rock, where you have your little chorus of, of of girls who you know in in chorus answer some question that the the primo rock star answers. That's such a terribly cheesy example, but
0: no, it makes a point.
2: Could easily um, devolve into something a little bit like Broadway, but instead, because of the whole scale of the thing, which is like a some massive triptych uh, above an altar, and the choice of E minor, you know, it's dark, it's minor key music, it's it's very serious and and contemplative, but it has a kind of grotesque feeling to it, almost like um, a Greek tragedy, and and some chorus is is like. Hasn't yet been activated in a way, but they're lying. They're, they're sort of in the wings and they're waiting to take their their part. In other places, it's so incredibly choreographically sensitive what Bach does because he'll do things like some in, in some of the crowd scenes where the, the 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 Jews are answering. The second chorus will start these scenes as if you've got like a. A group of four or five people just kind of chattering or murmuring and then mm-hmm. people get wind of this and then the first chorus joins and it becomes louder and richer and fuller i mean it's it's such a modern cinematic idea it's just extraordinarily well told <laughs> But then I think also the the metaphor is that with the two teams of forces, you have the chance with this piece to kind of almost sit back. You know, if you're playing in the first orchestra and suddenly the second orchestra plays an aria, I think that's very, he's grafted a kind of, of level of, of of scriptural, like, watching, in a sense. And you see this yeah, when you play. observation, yeah, yeah. Observation, that's the word yeah. I mean. You see this when the first orchestra suddenly sits back and has a chance to to actually take in what's going on across the room from the other orchestra. And I, I think this is a moment where, in fact, the music also stops because the participants in the drama are, are actually quite literally um, having a chance to, to hear... What the other team can do, and that's kind of a me- message for the incredible microcosm of the piece because it allows not only the the audience to stand still, but also the listener to actually really to be on stage and actually be experiencing what the other team is doing. It's very, it's a very unique kind of um, collection of voices to be heard in the piece. I think.
1: Yeah, it's really true. I yeah, I was thinking about that also. That it, it you feel from being in the orchestra you do feel like both a part of what's happening and Mm. a participant and an observer and because of that then sort of it feels like the whole audience is also a participant and an observer yes and that sort of everybody is in that together and then that there's this the character of the evangelist who sort of holds your hand through the whole thing so that nobody gets lost
2: yes absolutely because i
1: feel like without without him then it wouldn't it wouldn't be able to tie it all together and help. Like, you wouldn't feel held the same way. As
0: we mentioned earlier, the evangelist is the narrator of the whole story. Here's an example of one of his recitatives, where he speaks, sings to tell us the story. He sings it in German, so here's the
1: translation of it. The evangelist says, Then the chief priests gathered together, and the scribes and the elders among the people in the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiphas, and they held a council, how with cunning they might seize Jesus and put him to death. But they said, And now the chorus answers, Certainly not during the festival, so that there is not a riot among the people. Here's how that
2: sounds.
3: den des Priesters, it's
2: It's much like a, a a kind of narrative on a on a television program, but it's very interesting too, because unlike other these other people who experimented with their passions. Bach just takes the scriptural text and he doesn't do anything to it. Um, I mean, people like Brockus earlier in the 18th century had done a kind of poetical, poetic realisation of the actual scriptural journey itself. And Bach rejects that idea, um, Picander does as well, and they, they just take the text for what it is, which I think is a stroke of absolute genius because you've got these planes of, of narrative reality, one of them being these arias and especially the ariosos, which have these texts of, of incredible, like pungent early 18th century f- f- uh, flowery language. But that's very much grounded then by just the story and no, none of the kind of um, flights of textual fantasy, textual fantasy.
1: Here's an example of a soprano arioso, first with the translation of the flowery 18th century text.
0: Although my heart is swimming in tears, since Jesus takes leave of me, yet his testament brings me joy. His flesh and blood, O oh preciousness, he bequeaths to my hands. Just as in the world, among his own, he could not wish them harm, just so he loves them to
3: the end.
2: You know, what you say, Chloe, is so right, too, because I don't know if you've experienced this, but I find what the, what's so astonishing about the piece is that the way it's scored as well, the ripple effect of when people are playing the same thing, the same material in the two orchestras versus other music where the two orchestras play vastly different material at the same time or in kind of stereo echo, like the chorus that ends the first part, You've got this chorus, which is actually really hard to play physically play together because of the the, the, the difficulties yeah. of, of playing the same music so far apart, but then also playing two quavers in the first orchestra followed by another two notes in the second orchestra, just answered. Uh, but then you've got other music, like the first chorus, which uh, the two orchestras share a lot of the same material at crucial places. And to see the way he like weaves through this, it's a bit like some kind of molten lava, which is just sort of slowly shifting through the group. And it changes like the light coming from the sound of the group in the most ex- astonishing ways. And the person who's in front... I find when I'm directing it, I have to be so aware not to get distracted by how different those sounds are coming from the various sources of light. It's really, it's just such a stroke of genius. Incredible.
3: Mm.
1: And you said something about, you were talking about the text and it being not, not changed it just Mm. is the text did you understand that when you first heard this when you were 14 when you were sitting there were you did you speak German did you understand what was happening texturally
2: um texturally
1: uh, haha that was not uh,
2: (laughs) textually that's a really good question um look I mean my my German was pretty good then Chloe I'd, I'd my mother spoke German with us in the house so it wasn't I mean, it wasn't literally the mother tongue because we actually spoke English in in the home. But we would have spoken German 30% of the time, I'd say. Okay. So I had a very good conversational German. Um, but again, nothing can prepare you for the kind of German that you're dealing with, with someone like Picander. You know, it's just, it's super stylized, 18th century, personal Luther German Um uh, that being said, I guess the recitatives are somewhat straightforward um, in the Matthew Passion. In that you can, if you've had some experience of, of reading the Bible, which I had. I mean, my parents brought us up as, as Lutherans, so mm. we went to church and we had a strong, we had a strong sense of, of you know, what the Bible readings meant and, and how they sounded in German. And so I, I could. I could follow along with that.
1: This was kind of part of your tradition, then.
2: It was very, very much so, Chloe. So there's that too. I hadn't thought of it like that. You know, the I when I was fourteen, I didn't really identify myself as really a Christian and and a Lutheran, but it certainly was there in the upbringing for sure.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because the first time I heard this piece, like I mm. well, I still don't really speak German. I understand slightly more, especially because now I speak some Dutch, but yes. I like the very first time I heard it when I was, I think I was also a teenager and I had zero understanding of German and was brought up as a Jew. So like the whole context for it, I was struck by the music and I like totally adored the music, but actually really didn't know what was happening in terms of the story.
2: Yes. Do you know, that's so fascinating. What a perspective that is for these pieces also um, because of course, I mean, it, it, almost a pandora's box that we might not even want to talk about but the whole <laughs> the whole question of of how how the jewish community is portrayed in these pieces yeah. especially the the john passion of course which you know people get really upset about um yeah i can understand it because it there is a melodramatic uh, hollywood tone in the john passion um, the, this the speed at which things happen and also the kind of unrelenting um, kind of mob violence affect that Bach paints yeah. is, a, is a little bit depressing and damaging by the end of the piece I, I because of the the length and scale of the matthew those moments of kind of fierce obeying for blood moments are, are are separated so well through the piece that it's not quite as unrelenting as in the john passion but what an interesting perspective to to come to a sort of you know arch lutheran Piece like this, Uh, but you know, Lord knows, Luther was a a wild anti-Semite. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Clearly, I mean, and yeah, that's. I mean, that's the thing. Is it is it is a whole Pandora's box, and like, I guess we'll decide later how much of this we want to keep in. But um,
0: (laughs) no, I think it is a good discussion to have because we have to really think critically about what we're performing and why, what
1: we're making. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, how much do you divorce the art from its its context or from yes. its intentions? Mm-hmm.
2: I don't know why. I know it is very difficult because it it really opens up so many questions, and yet then it kind of suddenly transcends into something that's just completely not of its time. And yeah. I think one one of the things I felt so strongly with the Matthew Passion, Bach himself is struggling with this very human conflict of realizing the the utter hubris of writing something of this scale of beauty and perfection. And I think he sees in in his own admiration of the piece a kind of deep horror from his Lutheran side, which says, I should not have worldly pride in something that is rooted in the life of men like this, because all that I'm preparing myself for is, is happiness in death. You know, that, the, you know, the Lutheran doctrine of, of, suffering through the mortal coil and then being allowed to to join the Lord after death. I think the kind of proto-modern ideas that you see in the Matthew Passion of a piece that will outlast its creator are very troubling to Bach. But of course, Mm. he realizes that the piece is just a sensational product and something that requires deep care. You know, you don't see people in the 18th century writing Five versions of something like Bach preparing his 1736 score of that, the Matthew Passion, which is one of the most beautiful things that's been given to us from the 18th century. And this is a guy who knows this is probably the most important, one of the most important pieces I will write. You know, and that you really feel that struggle also with the the issue of, of anti-Semitism in these pieces, because you know that, that these were deeply held, kind of deeply ingrained beliefs on their part. Um, and, you know, it's like Wagner opera as well. That's a whole, you know, what are you supposed to do with that? People, of course, people around the world love the music, but... If you start to really step back and look at its associations politically, then you realize, oosh,
1: yikes. So yeah. tricky. I mean, I. And for me, like Wagner is less of a problem for me just because I actually just don't like Wagner very much. Yes, so for me, so it's handy. like it's easy. To <laughs> it's me. easy to be like just nope. Yep. <laughs> but with Bach, I mean, I have had so many people ask me like, "How does it feel playing these passions as a Jew? Like how how is that? What is that like? Do you feel okay doing it?" And it's funny, yeah. Somebody asks me that almost every year, and um, like obviously, I feel weird about the history of it, but um i feel a little bit like it's a fuck you i'm still here somebody's paying me money to play this
2: yes exactly and i you know? think that's, that's exactly the way uh, that's exactly the way it should be looked at that kind of level of of um, separation from from the issues but it's interesting because people do really people do get very upset by the issues presented in the john passion yeah. especially and and it's it's one of those really tricky issues i mean it's funny that we're talking about this because i've been doing a lot of holocaust reading lately oh, interesting! and it's just so weird that these things sort of line up for, for yeah. a while but you know it, it, you can't you see a lot of these conversations that interviewers will have with um both uh survivors but also um top uh officials in the nazi party and and the way people explain away their beliefs um are really interesting and people have different ways of coping with that. And I think one of them is to really confront it and really just take the issues at face value, at just very black and white, and to argue with them like that. But you can't have a rational dialogue with people at that stage of a discourse because you you can't, you know, you can't tell someone to have an attitude like you, Chloe, where you can say, look, I I need to separate myself from these issues from the 1720s, because I understand that. This is clearly a product of its time. Those 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 attitudes are reprehensible that we can't support them, but they are sort of separated from the reality of what, what comes out. That being said, then people also can have kind of crazy f- fantasy ideas about what they think they were doing at a time, and it doesn't line up at all. So it's just... Yeah. It's really, we could talk about it for hours. It's so yeah. fascinating.
1: We could. And it could, I mean, there is no actual real answer and everybody yes. does have to find a way that they feel that they can in either engage with it or not. Yes. And for me, the music is so magnificent and amazing that I feel like I would be losing out by deciding to not participate because right. I have a moral, um, problem with how things were written back in the 18th century
2: yeah and as you say we can agree we don't have that problem with Wagner so
1: <laughs> I don't have that problem with Wagner so it's
0: fine <laughs> I guess yeah it's great living in this time we can pick and choose
2: I know
3: yeah <laughs>
0: Maybe we can go back to your story with this piece because you So you mm. sort of discovered it in this amazing way when you were a teenager. When was the first time you actually played it?
2: Oh, goodness. So not for ages, Emma. Mm. I, you know, I, my father gave me the, the John Edit Gardner recording, which I just w- was obsessed with and listened to e- endlessly and then got a whole number of other recordings. It's not the sort of piece that you imagine you're going to be involved in playing in a certain way. In my mind, I didn't think I was going to be either playing continuo in it soon because I got distracted by other things. you know I, I had to learn my my piano rep and be a kind of dutiful piano student in a sense. Um, it's a piece that I sort of put to the side. Um, it was about 2016 when um, Alfonso Leal de Lojo who's now the um, executive director of the English concert but was then in charge of the Dunedin consort. Uh, a viola player came to me and said, we'd really like to invite you to do something. What would you like to do? And I I was dying to do more late 17th century French music because I just wanted to get as far away from you know, people's idea of what I like to do as possible. So I wanted to do a program built around Charpentier. And he said, okay, that sounds great. And then a few months later, he came back and said, look, we're having a really hard time uh, just finding a timeframe for this. John Butt has cancelled, would you be willing to do a Matthew Passion? And I just thought, well, you must be joking. I mean, that must be, that's absurd. (laughs) Let me think about it. (laughs) My first reaction was I have absolutely no business uh, standing in front of people who know this piece backwards um, unless I can really prepare and unless I really have something to bring to the table. So Alfonso said, look, just give it a go. And if it doesn't work, then you know you've tried, in a sense. Um, Wow,
0: that's so nice of him to be like... Just give you that, you know, confidence and, and trust you.
2: There's so few people who would, you know, allow you that degree of trust and and um, it's just the, one of the most wonderful things that's, that's ever happened to me. And that being said, you know, Dunedin really believes in a one and a part presentation of these pieces, which is also a very specific mode of presentation to be the first mm. time that you do the piece.
1: Yes. Yes. So there's a very nerdy controversy over the amount of musicians that should be used when performing this piece. Should you use full orchestras and choir where multiple people are playing singing the same parts, or do you just have one person playing singing each part? Most of the time it's performed with full orchestras and choirs, so it's kind of unusual that Chris's first time directing it was with one person per part. A lot of musicians and also non-musicians have very strong opinions about this, which we find kind of hilarious. <laughs>
2: I mean, the team was so spectacular, and I had to step back and say, how many times have these people done this piece with that level of kind of knowledge and immersion? So I set about really preparing for the piece as well as I could. And for me, the the inspiration was always that oft-quoted little line we have about Bach directing from the harpsichord. And I wanted to play harpsichord almost from beginning to end, I wanted to find something that had a bit more of Bach, the expert harpsichordist playing. And I think when I decided on that, I could come to the piece with a bit more confidence in a sense. Um that it would be a, a piece played by not Bach, the sort of conceptual abstract fugue person, but Bach who's playing, let's say, the violin sonatas with a friend, mm. you know. Yeah. So, you know, I worked for for really for months on the piece and Then we did this in 2017 at at Easter time. And it was just, again, one of those experiences. I can't tell you, I cannot tell you the feeling of emotion to hear people playing and singing the first chorus for the first time around you. And we were rehearsing in this church in Edinburgh and everyone was actually standing in a circle. The singers were behind me and the orchestra in front. And I mean, I definitely started crying. You. And, of course, all these incredibly seasoned English London professionals are sitting yeah. in front of you, and you think, oh, my goodness, here it comes.
0: Oh, no, emotion. Don't let it out. <laughs> yeah,
2: <but> there's just <laughs> nothing to prepare you for for that. You know, you heard the piece as a 14-year-old, and and then you hear – also, you hear it one and a part, which is such a in, – in a certain way, a much more direct vision of the piece because it's much, much more conversational, much more spoken-like, which I think enhances the – Terrifying quality.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's really intimate in a particular way that way.
3: Mm.
1: Yeah.
0: I find it interesting that because I okay, so I first um, sang it um, yes. before playing it because I sang in the uh, college choir, and so I actually didn't know it at all until I was eighteen I okay. was in first year uni singing my college choir, and we did one of the first you know productions of *St Matthew Passion* in Australia for like a long time. Um, and it was amazing. Also, like going back to the language thing, I was starting to learn German at that time, and so my level of German was really crap, except for all of these like religious and like storms <laughs> and death and like right. <laughs> and Jesus said, <laughs> like, yes. and he said to him, and like I was, yeah, just, exactly. I was like, mm. <laughs> interesting way to learn German, but um, it was very useful. <laughs> But yeah, but the the thing that I find so amazing about this um, Sir Matthew Passion that we were talking about a little bit earlier is the the choirs have these kind of changing roles um, mm-hmm. where they get to be sort of observers and they can sort of maybe just be you know the the nice bridging music between two things or yes. they can be actual mobs like crowds going you know mental um, and then talking to each other the two choirs interacting or interacting with the you know with the orchestra or interacting even with one of the the vocal soloists and so um it i feel like it must have been so difficult for those one per part singers to be able to be so versatile to get those different characters and kind of Mm. um yeah i don't know yeah textures and things like
2: that you're right about that
0: did did, i mean i'm assuming they did really well but (laughs) with that but Yeah, how was it?
2: That's so hard to know. I mean, that's where you start to really find out people's true beliefs about what they want to hear. And some people just do not want to hear a one and a part Bach Passion. I think they think of it as a kind of heresy in a certain sense. Um, And there are other people, probably like the three of us, who actually are fascinated by how these changing modes of presentation affect the way the piece comes across. When people hear it one and a they're horrified because they want to hear a big chorus singing the the opening chorus or the the crowd scenes they want that sonic mass to to
0: overwhelm them yeah exactly yeah
1: Speaking of um, the music, do you have, I know this is like an enormous question that I'm about to ask you, but do you have some favorite bits of it? What are your favorites? Gosh. um, (laughs) I know that that is not a very fair question. Sorry.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, let me think. I'm trying to think of every time I've done it, the places where, where I sort of am on the verge of breaking down. Um, yes,
1: that's like, what I want. want. <laughs> which are those places?
2: I would say, for me, the biggest moments are the following. It's the end of part one, the duet, so it's my Jesus Mund gefangen, mm-hmm. this soprano and alto duet, with the second chorus interjections, which I just find so heartbreaking. Someone suggested to me once that instead of being uh, in a tone of outrage and, and loud uh, objection, that this is. The, the chorus of believers kind of hiding in the in the dark, in the forest, sort of saying, mm. you know, what's happening? You know, don't don't take him. And then, of course, you've got the Blitzer und Donner culmination of that,
3: which is so good. (laughs)
2: Then the next stop for me, I know one should always say Abamadich, which...
1: You don't have to. You don't have
0: to. I mean, it's amazing, but yeah. Just to clarify, the Abamadich aria that Chris just referred to is one of the most famous pieces from the Sir Matthew Passion. It has a fancy solo violin part and is sung by an alto soloist. It is very beautiful and heartbreaking. Here's some of it now.
2: Do you know, I, one of the moments in that is the chorale after abamedich Dich, Bin ich gleich von dir gewichen, which is, in terms of the the structure of the piece, is one of those play, places where you have a chorale directly after an aria that also closes a scene. You know, and It's an amazingly crystal moment of purity.
1: By the way, quick spoiler alert, Chris is about to talk about his next favorite aria, Geduld, sung by a tenor with a solo viola de gamba called either viol or gamba for short. Just a quick note on a couple of things so hopefully the next bit of conversation makes more sense. A viola de gamba is like a cello in that it is held upright between the legs, but it has six or seven strings and frets like a guitar, and it was super popular in the 18th century, especially in France, and most especially as a sign of the French aristocracy because of Louis XIV. Chris is also about to talk about continuo playing. The continuo is the team of instruments
0: that play the bass line and harmonies and can be played by a variety of instruments, including harpsichords and organs, as well as cello, viol, double bass, and theorbo AKA an old style of guitar. People can choose how many of these instruments to use at any given time to create different colors and textures of the music. Here's a translation of the aria and a bit of how
1: it sounds. Patience patience when false tongues pierce although i suffer contrary to my due shame and scorn indeed dear god shall revenge the innocence of my heart
2: And then, you know, carrying on from that, the, the next place I always feel like my heart rate goes way up is um, Geduld, the solo tenor aria.
3: Mm.
2: And the reason for that is I think it's one of the, I think it's one of the places in the piece that really shows you what the continuo playing is really all about. Um, and it's, I think it's probably the hardest aria in the whole piece in terms of what you're faced with as a continuo player in terms of solutions. And when i when Oh, I've how done so? it, Well, you've got so many different schools of thought with that piece, um, Chloe. It, it, you see a lot of French groups, for example, with an army of bass instruments. And I find it turns into a little bit like the tenor is, is dragging this tractor up a hill or, <laughs> or a container full of cargo up a hill. And I think it's not the point of the piece. I've always, I've always done it only with harpsichord and viol. Um, because I think it's a moment of, of incredible uh, concentration that the limelight suddenly focuses on this very small theatre of, of participants, and I think it's the important thing about the, the vial music in in both of the passions is that there's this incredible nod to French culture and Louis the Fourteenth and the cult of vial playing and the vial as an emblem of the aristocratic. Mm. Tied into Louis XIV. And I think that emergence emerges somehow more vividly when you have a harpsichord accompanying it. It's sort of very dripping with color and texture. And I think those moments are really harpsichord moments. Um, in That's just my opinion. But invariably, you know, you've been playing continuo for the piece for the last hour and a half or almost two. And all of a sudden, everyone stops and it's just violin harpsichord. And for me, it's a moment like, okay, you've got to now bring your top level playing to this yeah. moment because it's an important aria. It, it, it represents, you know, it's such a vivid moment where the, the thoughts of the, of the third party observer are so vividly portrayed. Then, without question, the the part of the piece that actually is the hardest for me is the Arioso, Am Abend da es kühle war, right before Mache dich mein Herz rein. Mm. Um, I'm not sure why, but the the texture of the Arioso with this and the upper strings and the kind of Philip Glass-esque quality of, of stillness in, in that piece. But the, the heartbreaking quality of the text is just something every single time uh, uh, the moment where I really, really have to um, just pull myself together.
1: Is the
0: translation. In the evening, when it was cool, Adam's fall was made apparent. In the evening, the Saviour bowed himself down. In the evening, the dove came back, bearing an olive leaf in its mouth. O oh, lovely time, or evening hour, the pact of peace with God has now been made. Since Jesus has completed his cross, his body comes to rest. Ah, dear soul, ask, go, have them give you the dead Jesus. All salutary all precious
2: remembrance. And what strikes me so much about, about that moment in the piece is that it's the place in the piece where you realize that Bach has this incredible program that he's inserted into the piece. I mean, the first chorus is in 12a. It's ostensibly a, a dance meter that we don't associate with you know, dragging across up a hill with you know and it's this world of of the sacred and secular of the earthly and the divine that that he manages to fuse so brilliantly with these very concrete simple choices and so when you realize that you've been manipulated in the best sense of the word through this journey and you get to and the feeling is one of of exaltation of being uh, allowed to be the person in charge of of Christ's burial, but how that message has gone through these various uh, in, incarnations in the piece, and that's that's a moment where you you realise that joy joy does actually have its place in the story and does sort of win out in a certain way, um, and it's so dance-like and and so it's one of the very uh, musical theatre moments in the piece, I think, and I mean that in the best possible sense, where everyone. <laughs> yeah. Everyone who hears it knows what the message is. It's, it's a very clear text, it's a very clear message, it's a very, very clear affect in a way that so much of the rest of the pieces is, is very much slightly shrouded by all this complexity. And of course, the final chorus, but perhaps not so much for the sheer musical content of it, but just in its placement of something at the end of three hours, you just you feel like, oh my God, the end is actually coming up. And it's that time when you know that the audience can sit back and say, oh, that that's now the end of this. I can digest what I've been through for the last three hours. And we on the stage too. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but it's one of those pieces where you start the beginning and you think, oh my God, three hours. But when it goes really well, it just it just feels like one of those amazing long Hollywood-esque dreams where you just don't want to wake up and it's like floating or, or swimming and you get to the end and you're almost up, upset in a certain way yeah. uh, that it's over.
1: It's very true. Yeah, that's true. Every time I get there, I have the like, every time I think, oh my God, here we are. Yes. Like I sort of am coming back to myself.
2: I always find the hardest piece that that at least is you end the first half, first part, and it's gone well and you think, okay, a lot of very difficult things in that. Yes. Especially the last chorus, which can, you know, is logistically very difficult. But then you have a little break and then you come back at the beginning of part two and you realize, oh, right. Now now we've got to get to
0: work, yeah. You
2: know, now you really have to up your game in terms of concentration. And if you can make it, past the middle of part two without any lapses in confidence in a sense or, or like direction in your thinking, then I think you've made it.
0: Yeah, it's so true that um, towards the end, you he, he gives you the time to process and rest. I mean, it's literally time to rest in the, yes. in the end to just be like, yes. this is all the things that have happened. Let's just have a moment to just... Just have your moment before we all go home and <laughs> do
2: yes, whatever. That's very true.
0: And here's how it all ends. As I just said, the words are literally talking about resting.
1: We sit down with tears and call to you in the grave rest gently, gently rest. Rest, you exhausted limbs. Rest gently, rest well. Your grave and headstone shall, for the anxious conscience, be a comfortable pillow and the resting place for the soul. Rest gently, gently rest. Highly contented, there the eyes fall asleep.
3: You know, one of
2: the things that we also forget is that, you know, the Lutheran community hears the last chorus of the of the Matthew Passion, but the next time they hear it, the next thing is Easter. And that kind of, it's a little bit like, you know, your favorite episode on Netflix, and it's like, next week. Uh, yeah. the, you have oh, to yeah. wait until you get to be the... To continued. Exactly. And that, that level of involvement also, you know, in the chorals in a piece like this for the... I mean, they're not actually literally singing them, but they're... That is the part. But of they the, know them. They do, and they know what they mean, and they know the melodies, and and the way they're transformed must have been so, such a powerful transformative effect for the congregation.
0: I know how amazing totally. would it have been to be the first people hearing this, and like because you would know all of the choruses, yes. so they were just like your pop songs or whatever of the time, and so you know way to make the whole thing a bit more sort of able to digest as well because you have all of these choruses that everyone knows dotted throughout. And so you have things to cling onto that you're
1: familiar with. And yeah. And you know (sighs) the story and you don't have TV and it's really cold, but you're sitting in the church with everybody in the, you know, like everyone's there. And
0: you've got literal physical
1: surround sound stereo. Yes. Yeah. Hearing as we were talking about earlier yeah and you can't listen to music at home on the cd like this is
2: that's such a good point point. and then what yeah. a music to be yeah. exposed to in the best sense of the word you know just really astonishing
1: Okay, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to say about this piece? I don't
2: think so. I really think we've covered absolutely everything. We that have done a good
1: I, job. Well we done. We have us. done a good job. <laughs> <laughs> well done, everybody. Yes,
2: absolutely. It's so nice to have three people. Um, Ooh, yeah. Because you know, so often, um, yeah, it's nice just to have a kind of triangle to bounce around ideas
0: yeah, in. Yeah, different it's perspectives. And, and Different, yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I have to say, I mean, the part of the reason that we started this podcast is so that we could just talk about music yes, with people, people we like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like
3: it's if great. you can't
1: be playing the music all the time, the second best is to talk about it.
2: That's so true. That <laughs> with is everybody.
1: So, true. so yeah. yeah. Great. Um We have one question that we ask at the end of uh, our interviews, and that is, is there a piece from another instrument's repertoire that you're jealous of?
2: um a piece from another instrument's repertoire do you know i'd have to say probably the beethoven violin concerto actually um mm, nice it's just yeah because you can listen to it without having to feel involved i mean i've played the beethoven violin concertos and i love to but there, there's that sense of i love that period for beethoven uh, the, in the middle period where there's this sense of incredible calm as well and and not so much kind of struggle and fighting which is wonderful too in the later music but that piece is just, uh, yeah, you can just float, I can so float away in that piece.
1: Yes, excellent. We agree.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great. Um, Now, is there a way that people can support you, get in touch with you, get your stuff? Do you want to just plug yourself for a minute? Um, So
2: how do you normally do that? Um, I don't really know, actually. What a good question. So um,
0: if you have like a website, we can put your website in the show notes. We can link anything. Do that.
3: Yeah.
2: Please we'll link my website. It's going to be updated soon, so there'll be some new Great. recordings. And there's a new recording of Beethoven Piano Concertos coming out soon, so awesome. look out for that. It'll be the last volume with Concertos 1 and 3 with Freiburg Brook Orchestra. So.
0: Awesome. And people Excellent. can people directly buy those albums from your website or do they need to go to some other...
2: Thing. they can um and,
1: and is that the best way for because we talk on this podcast about like trying to find the way that artists get the most money for where people purchase the albums is yes. that the best way to purchase the album is I on your website
2: yes so i'm not really sure okay I'm, but um i think that's probably true Chloe. yes it's
1: probably better there than like spotify yeah yes, yes. yeah cool Great. Check it out on Spotify. Realize that you love it, then go purchase it on the website.
2: That's wonderful. Thanks for kind of your career, Yes.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for being here. Thank yeah. you for having
2: me. I really enjoyed that, guys. It was really lovely to talk so deeply about something for a change. Um, yeah. And this is one of those pieces that allows you to do that because there's just so many issues that don't have to do with you know what harmony you're playing in the right hand. It, it's it's yeah. less technical than that. Actually, it's about a lot yeah. of things. Super
0: yeah. human. Deep yeah. Love. yeah. 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 Thank you so much.
1: So much for tuning in to Outside the Music Box. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Chris Bezadenhut. If so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and tell all your friends about it so that the algorithms do their magic and spread the love. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any questions or want to share music that you love, you can write to us at concerts.musicbox at gmail.com or on Facebook and Instagram at Music Box Concerts and Twitter at Outside Music Box. Write in with comments or questions that you have and we'll get back to you. Big shout out to Joanna Neuschatz for her help with
0: editing and another fun reminder to donate via our PayPal, which is paypal.me forward slash outside It's super easy to donate and these donations
1: help keep the podcast running in lieu of advertising. In the show notes, we've included links to three Spotify playlists, one specifically for the pieces in this episode and the others for all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast so far. However, we really encourage you to purchase music in order to support the artists. The best way to support Chris is by going to his website and purchasing any of his many recordings, which we've linked in the show notes. See you next time outside the music box.